from the unreal to the real, lead us from darkness unto light, lead us from death to immortality. Om, peace, peace, peace. Om Namah Shri Yati Rajaya Vivekananda Surai Satchid Sukha Swarupaya Swami Pahārine Today I would like to talk about Swami Vivekananda's lecture, Freedom of the Soul. So that's why we have titled this talk, Freedom. Swami Vivekananda starts with a very, uh, what will feel like a very contemporary note today. He says that the Vedantic ideal of freedom is a very democratic kind of spirituality. He said that just as in the West we see that people are ever pushing for a higher and higher ideas of freedom and democracy, that they find it intolerable that anybody should rule over them, uh, from the rule of feudal chiefs to the rule of kings to, the, to, the, to a democratic nation where power is distributed equally among all citizens. Uh, and some of that process we see it's still happening. It's, um, it's an ongoing process what you see today in the streets of um, big cities and towns in the United States today. He says exactly the same thing happened uh, in the realm of spirituality and philosophy in ancient India. In the Vedas you find there's a movement from the many Vedic gods to one god, that there is one um, supreme power which rules and controls the universe but at one point <coughs> the Vedic thinkers found even that intolerable and so the one personal God was uh, quickly made into an impersonal principle which is distributed throughout the universe which is immanent in the universe in every being in everything in everybody so from many gods to one God one personal God the supreme creator of the universe to uh, an impersonal principle, an absolute, which is in and through everybody. So there is nobody who is like a ruler of the universe and the rest of us are ruled or subjects. You see, uh, the movement towards one God, monotheism, Swami Vivekananda says in another place, in the West here, I am afraid your much vaunted monotheism is but halfway house. Beyond monotheism, see what happened was from many gods to um, one god which is a primary teaching of the Abrahamic religions. Uh, Islam and Christianity get it from Judaism. But even before Judaism, um, the Zoroastrians were really the first who came to this idea uh, that there is one god. Ahura Mazda, uh, which is the supreme power in this universe. Um, Swami Vivekananda says even this is halfway house. Beyond the one God, higher than that, subtler than that, is this absolute principle which is the reality of the entire universe, which is the reality within each of us. So from the personal God to the impersonal principle, which is, what is that impersonal principle in the entire universe? It is existence, being itself. Uh, all things which exist, 
objects and living beings uh, up to the highest God, all are manifestations of one fundamental being, which is called Sat, pure being. Not only is, the, uh, is God deconstructed and found to be the absolute, but the human being, the individual is also not left as a person. The Upanishads inv investigate the individual and are we just bundles of flesh and bone? Um, are we just minds, bodies and minds? And they found in this body-mind complex that same impersonal principle, and a principle of awareness or consciousness, uh, which illumines the body and the mind and the senses. So our real, the, the individual is now investigated and found to be this pure consciousness. And the reality of the entire universe is found to be this pure being. And this pure consciousness and pure being were found to be in a grand synthesis, one and the same reality. And the Upanishads come to this uh, grand statement of identity. Tattvamasi, that thou art. That meaning, that reality of God. Beyond even God is that pure being. And thou means you the individual who thought that you were um, um, a tiny creature of flesh and blood, you are actually that is this immortal consciousness, the spirit, the immortal consciousness. And this spirit within each of us, and that one reality of this universe, it's exactly the same. That thou art. The Upanishads proclaim this in different ways, but they come to this conclusion. The Chandogya Upanishad, uh, it says this, Tattvamasi, that thou art. Uh, nine times in the sixth chapter. The, um, the, the Aitariya Upanishad in the Rig Veda, it says, Pragyanam Brahma, the consciousness that each one of us, we feel within ourselves, is none other than the reality of the universe, Brahman. The Vedarnik um, Upanishad from the Yajur Veda, it says, Aham Brahmasmi. I am Brahman. I who thought I was just this little creature, I am the absolute reality Brahman. The Mandukya Upanishad from the Atharva Veda, it says, I am Atma Brahma. This very self, this individual which you think yourself to be, is in reality Brahman, the absolute reality of the universe. So this was what we might call the, the democratization of spirituality. Then came the age of the philosophers, the age of system building. Uh, from after the Upanishads, then there, there is the Sutra literature, um, the great philosoph philosophical systems of ancient India, the Nyaya Sutras of Gautama, the Vaisheshika Sutras of Kanada, most ancient, um, the Sankhya system of Kapila, the well-known, to, even today, all over the world, the Yoga system of, uh, Yoga Sutras, the Yoga system of Patanjali, um, and, and other systems, both heterodox and orthodox, the great systems of Buddhism and Jainism. So they came up. There the question was asked. Um, it is all very well to say that there is one reality, Brahman. But the question is, how does this one become the many? Because there is no doubt that we perceive the many. This vast and complex universe with its myriad uh, creatures, with its, its millions of planets and stars, how does one impersonal, featureless being consciousness appear as, become this many? How does the one become the many? Or in a less philosophical form, uh, the, the problem of evil, 
which is something that every religion has to contend with. Um, if you believe in God, then how is it that um, if there is an all-powerful, loving and just God, how is there suffering in the universe? How, how is there so much sorrow in this universe? Uh, it, just by moving from theistic religion to Advaita Vedanta does not solve the problem. You can put it in this way also. If we are all Brahman, if this world is existence, consciousness, bliss, if that is the reality, then why is there suffering? The same problem still persists. Why is there limitation and suffering and sorrow and degradation? Uh, if we are immortal, why do we go through uh, birth and death? So on. So these two questions, they are not two but two, one in a philosophical form, how does the one become the many, and the other in a more uh, practical form, why do we suffer? What is the answer? The different uh, philosophies gave different answers. Uh, one becomes the many, the relationship between one and the many. The theistic religions said the one creates the many, God creates this universe. And there are many philosophical problems with this. Uh, the Sankhya system says, not God, but there is nature. Nature uh, creates this diverse universe. So in Prakriti, which in principle is not so different from a modern scientific, a modern cosmological approach. Uh, when we say in today's language that um, uh, from the Big Bang all of this has emerged. If you ask what was there before the Big Bang, the only answer is that there was a, what is called a singularity. So from a singularity comes the Big Bang and from that has emerged this entire physical universe. Not so different in principle when the Sankhyan says from Prakriti, which is like a singularity, has emerged this entire universe of diversity. But anyway, one creates the many. Whether it is God or Prakriti or whatever you call it. Advaita Vedanta uh, says that not that the one has become the many, not that the one has created the many, Rather, the one appears as the many. One absolute reality, being, consciousness, bliss, satchidananda, remaining that appears as this universe. One remaining the one appears as subject and object. Swami Vivekananda says, one only exists. It appears as nature and soul, the subject and the object. It is not that the rope becomes the snake. The rope appears as the snake. And this has a deep uh, consequence. The consequence is this, that if, we, if the universe is an appearance of Brahman, if our individuality, our, our jivahood, our, that we are this little sentient being, uh, born and aging and suf um, uh, subject to disease and old age and death, if all this is an appearance and not in reality, and in reality we are somehow, right at this moment, we are that one, that existence, consciousness, bliss. Then freedom from suffering, freedom from this world of bondage, that freedom must be our nature already. If we are Brahman at this point, then we are already free. It is not a freedom that has to be gained. Uh, so some of, the, some of the theistic, dualistic systems say that freedom is possible. Freedom from life and death, the cycle of life and death is possible. But right now we are in bondage and by the grace of God, by our spiritual practices and by, finally by the grace of God, we will go beyond bondage into freedom. Advaita opposes that. So Advaita says that uh, if we are in bondage, 
and by spiritual practice or by the grace of God, if bondage ends and freedom begins, moksha begins, then there is a problem. The problem is that which begins did not exist earlier. If it did not exist earlier, it's quite possible that it will not exist later also. A moksha which was not existing, somehow it comes into existence, can again go out of existence. What good would that moksha be? If moksha, freedom, has a beginning, it could have an end. And a freedom which has an end, how is it in any way little, uh, how is it better than samsara, which is full of beginnings and ends, uh, creation and destruction, birth and death. So the dualistic idea of freedom, that it is something to be gained, which we do not have and we will have in the future, it is a logical problem. That's why Advaita Vedanta says, our bondage, our suffering, our limitation is only apparent. In reality, we are Brahman and our very nature is freedom and we are already free. It is just that we do not know it, just that we do not see it. So if there is bondage at all, the bondage is of the nature of ignorance, of not knowing our innate freedom. Moksha is our Swarupa, freedom is our very nature. So this is basically the thrust of Swami Vivekananda's talk, that the freedom is the very nature of the soul. It is not something that the soul gains, had, lost and will gain again. It's not something that the uh, soul has to earn by its sadhana. Rather, spiritual practice at most can remove the delusion that we are not free. Evil, suffering. Why is there suffering? Similarly, the dualistic systems, um, they conceive of suffering in different ways. One way has been to blame evil on a power. So God is, a, is on the side of the good and there is a power, um, call it Satan or Shaitan, the devil, which is the source of evil. Here also it was the Zoroastrians who first came up, the Zoroastrians who first came up with this idea. Um, so Ahura Mazda was the god of light, the god of the universe. And all problems, all suffering and evil was caused by, the, uh, by an entity called Ariman, the forces of darkness. And the whole of the universe was understood as this perpetual struggle between light and darkness and we human beings have to choose uh, the side of light to be saved. So this idea is a dualistic idea. Vedanta does not agree with it. Vedanta says what we consider to be evil is a superimposition, an appearance no more real than the snake which is imagined on the rope by error, by mistake. Not knowing that we are the limitless being, not knowing that we are this constant awareness, not knowing that we are this um, infinite bliss. We think that we are these limited creatures of flesh and blood, that we have to seek for happiness, we have to seek for security in this inconstant world and we suffer, this ocean of samsara. So suffering and evil are superimpositions, in the technical word is adhyas and appearance, uh, an unreal coating if you will. It is that, that infinite being, sat, which we are, which appears in our life as life and death, birth and death. It is that infinite consciousness which appears in our life 
as knowledge and ignorance also that we know certain things and we know that we are ignorant of certain things both are kinds of knowledge and so this one consciousness appears as all kinds of knowledge and ignorance in our lives it is that one infinite bliss ananda which appears as the rishis swami vivekananda says the rishis were bold enough to say all the worldly joys big and small Uh, intense and dull all kinds of worldly pleasures they are just drops in the ocean of bliss which we are so it's our own nature which is appearing as this world at this point to understand this we must confront the objections to this just just uh, yesterday uh, professor arindam chakravarti was telling us that to understand any kind of siddhanta conclusion one must examine the opposite point of view also the most powerful objections to this philosophy should be taken up in all seriousness and investigated once you know the opposition once you know the objections thoroughly then only you can understand the the uh, depth of your own position often we try to paper over the objections because we may be afraid suppose the opposition and the objection is powerful and convincing we may lose conviction in our own philosophy but if the philosophy is so weak that you lose conviction in it when the first few blows come it's better to let it go whereas advaita vedanta is so strong that the strongest of opposition can only serve to strengthen it further when you can take up the most searching penetrating questions and find the answers to that and solve those questions your faith and your conviction in advaita will become deeper so what are the uh, major objections to this kind of a philosophy uh, swami vivekananda this is all from swami vivekananda's talk uh, i was seeing that he raised most powerful objections to advaita uh, if you look at uh, his presentation of of uh, advaita it follows the format of shravana manana niridhyasana first he tells us the truth which we were talking about the upanishadic truth that you are brahman then in manana manana means the process of reasoning and reflection he raises these powerful objections which we will look at now and then uh, find solutions to it and then finally the, the stage of niridhyasana meditation or assimilation so what are these objections in today's age and swami vivekananda mentions this more than 100 years ago science scientific materialism scientific materialism says that matter and energy are real not your consciousness atman brahman scientific materialism says that on the stage of space time and causation this is the theater stage and the actors are matter and energy and they produce the entire universe living and non living not your pure being consciousness or spirit or whatever it is it is matter and energy um, which transform is transformed into the stars and planets of this universe and on this planet maybe some other planets also the same matter it undergoes transformations and gives rise to living matter living bodies and by the process of evolution these bodies become more and more sophisticated um, intricate and they generate sophisticated nervous systems and brains and in these nervous systems and brains by uh, some process consciousness is produced 
And Bill was telling me just day for yesterday. From a scientific perspective, modern scientific perspective, human beings are an afterthought. Human beings and consciousness are the secondary, afterthought, epiphenomenon, byproduct. This is the materialistic challenge and very powerful. Science is the main Purvapaksha today, the, the great opponent today. Then there is um, another way which is a very ancient opponent of this Vedantic uh, perspective is Buddhism. Again yesterday um, Professor Chakravarti was talking about the Buddhistic attack on the, the Vedantic or the Vedic idea of self. Atman, Brahman, uh, that, that there is a permanent self, that there is a permanent God. The Buddhists deny it, they dismiss it. What are the arguments? So very quickly, yesterday Professor Chakravarti told us five arguments based on the work of Dharmakirti. One argument is uh, Anupalabdhi, that we do not find a self. We find body and mind, where is this self? Anupalabdhi means non-perception. If you think that something is there and it, it can be seen and you go and look and you see it's not there, then that itself that not perceiving it is a proof that it does not exist. Um, absence of apprehension is apprehension of absence. Uh, not perceiving it is the proof that it does not exist. Not that anybody is saying that the, sense is, the self is something which you can see and if I don't see it then it does not exist, it can touch or smell or taste. I don't touch the self, I don't smell the self. It's not as crude as that. We understand that the self is a psychological entity. It must be something in the mind. And when we examine the mind, we do not find the self. David Hume, the Scottish philosopher, he says this um, several centuries after Dharmakirti. He says that when I examine my mind, I find sensations, pleasant or unpleasant or neutral. I find thoughts and memories and ideas and pleasures and pains. I do not find the self. Where is this self? Just fleeting, changing thoughts and feelings and emotions, memories. Where is the self in all of this? So, first proof, first attack of the Buddhist, self, Atma does not exist because you do not see it, you do not experience it. Second proof, um, second attack of the Buddhists is that if you try to infer the Atman, say from some psychological fact like memory, I who experienced the cookie yesterday, today I remember it. So memory, past experience is remembered now. This memory proves that there is a continuity of self, otherwise what will happen? That um, somebody else ate the cookie and somebody else is remembering the eating of the cookie. That's silly. I who ate the cookie, I am the same one who am remembering it. Therefore, can I say that I am the one constant self between the eating and the remembering? So does memory prove a constant self? The Buddhist says no. Memory does not prove a permanent unchanging self. Um, the uh, idea of samskaras, uh, a changing bundle of, of traces giving rise to memory at each instant. It can explain memory. It is, so memory is not sufficient to infer that there is a permanent unchanging self. In fact, the Buddhists will go further and say, how can an unchanging self 
register experiences and recall them in memory that that needs some change so unchanging self does not uh, is not proved by memory um another attack could be the buddhist attack is substance and quality so um a flower when you see a flower you see a flower it has red red rose the redness of the rose the text soft touch of the rose the fragrance of the rose uh, and uh, when you drink the rose water a particular rose ta- taste of the rose the taste and the form and the touch and the fragrance these are qualities and the idea was that there is a substance which holds the qualities that's a nyaya idea dravya is necessary for guna substance is necessary for quality so there is a substance called a rose in which the qualities the form the taste the smell and the touch they all in here in that the buddhist says why why is a substance necessary to hold the qualities why not a bundle of qualities only and has anybody seen the substance without the qualities no so why why would you claim that there is a substance apart from the qualities in which the qualities remain so why do you say that there is a permanent atma in which all the other characteristics uh, in here uh, or uh, atma which possesses these body mind this body mind complex so substance theory cannot be used uh, is not justified and you cannot say on that analogy that there is an atma there is a self another is by seeing the intelligent action of other beings i can infer that there is a self in them i the self have a desire to speak and then i can see that i am speaking so when others speak i can infer that there is an intelligent self uh, in each of them just like in me in them also that also the buddhist says it, it is a flawed inference and there are reasons why that you cannot infer that there is a self either in myself or in others just by looking at intelligent action that is the fourth one another objection so these are not objections that's why vivekananda gave so vivekananda just said that the buddhists say that there is a series of changes in the mind and those changes uh, are give the illusion of a permanent atma series of thoughts and feelings come in in process like a stream of consciousness and they generate the illusion that there is a permanent self but just for the sake of completion the fifth uh objection of the buddhists to the self is that um, cognition so when i experience an object and that is the object of my knowledge and i have the knowledge of that object these two are indubitable you have knowledge and you have this object of knowledge but knowledge is a relationship uh, so a relationship must have at least two terms here is the object and there must be a subject so every knowledge proves that there must be a subject that i am the subject of my knowledge subject object and in between there is knowledge if you have object clearly you are aware of different objects and you have the knowledge that is also very clear if the knowledge is a relationship then the other term the subject of that relationship must be there so in more technical language intentional object proves that there must be an intentional subject also we the the uh buddhists deny this entirely uh, for them these relationships are not real except the causal relationship and so uh, the intentionality does not prove the existence of a permanent subject so for these five reasons the buddhists say that there is no atma no atma brahman nothing like that what is the answer then 
what would advaita what would vedanta say to this swami vivekananda says just look there are these two sides one side um the materialistic side maybe modern scientific materialism or in an entirely different form um buddhist momentariness uh, they say that there is this continuous changing matter and consciousness is an appearance or a byproduct or an even an illusion there are uh, theorists philosophers today like daniel dennett who say that consciousness they go to the extent of saying consciousness is an illusion it's an appearance matter is real so swami vivekananda more than 100 years ago says that there is this this side which says matter and energy are real your consciousness is a byproduct or even an illusion on the other side is advaita vedanta which says consciousness is real matter is an illusion brahma satyam jagat mithya brahman is real the world is an appearance consciousness is real and the world matter is an appearance which side will you take these two positions just diametrically opposite and this swami vivekananda more than 100 years ago he puts these two positions and says which side will you take and he says certainly i will take the side of consciousness or spirit why why he says the arguments are stronger on this side what are the arguments why would you take that consciousness is real matter is an appearance the why would you take that we are not bodies and minds really though we appear to be but we are actually consciousness why he gives two reasons one reason is very interesting the first one both are very interesting so we'll quickly look at the reasons how he deals with these objections and those the reasons he gives are valid very powerful even more valid today than they were 100 years ago the first one he says because we only feel ourselves nobody has ever seen matter outside of himself these are his words nobody has ever seen matter outside of himself we feel only ourselves i've never met a man who can experience who can jump out of his skin and experience something what does he mean by this yeah. this is the first first counter he gives and the second counter he gives is the spiritual explanation the explanation from the side of the spirit is a better explanation of the universe it explains the universe the materialistic explanation is illogical he says so why first of all let's consider his remarkable statement that uh, um nobody has experienced matter outside himself that seems to be strange at first glance it seems that this is no this is not true we are experiencing matter here i am seeing people and chairs and fans and light and um you know all of this i can see i can hear and smell and taste and touch all these things outside of myself but if you look carefully whatever you are experiencing is it outside of your awareness outside of your consciousness no in a very trivial sense by definition the very fact that you claim to experience something means that consciousness is already involved there let me repeat that that i see something if i am asleep can i see something no i am hearing smelling tasting touching uh, and even more so i am thinking about physics and cosmology and um, you know space and time already consciousness is involved there the very use of the word seeing smelling tasting touching hearing uh, thinking understanding remembering all of these are consciousness events in consciousness they appear and disappear these are functions of the mind and the senses and without consciousness there is no experience possible 
all experience is in consciousness by definition by the definition of the of the word experience what is the word experience can you define it yes experience is equal to consciousness plus object experience is equal to consciousness plus object i see a flower it is consciousness plus the object flower consciousness lighting up the mind and through that the sense organs like the eyes and through the eyes i experience the flower this is non controversially a definition of uh, of experience so in every experience consciousness is involved you cannot leave consciousness out of it swami vivekananda says nobody has ever experienced matter outside oneself oneself means outside consciousness um, the philosopher galen strawson he wrote um, Uh, an article called the hard problem he talks about the hard problem of matter slightly half humorously but half seriously also he says we talk so much about the hard problem of consciousness that how can a brain produce consciousness how can matter um, of the brain produce first person experience of consciousness so called hard problem of con- consciousness <coughs> he says there is no hard problem of consciousness really we have already convinced ourselves that there is something called a brain which is producing consciousness and then we can't imagine how brain is producing consciousness and we say hard problem but really speaking um, consciousness is directly evident to uh, all of us all the time the first thing that we are aware of or through which we are aware is consciousness everybody all the time without that we cannot be aware of anything without that we cannot have any experience so consciousness is fundamental to our experience after that he says comes matter it is through that consciousness that we are we are aware of the body and the physical world and we study it and we find matter what matter is is the real question and he says as we investigate matter more and more uh, modern physics matter is disap- he says it's disappearing before our very eyes from molecules to atoms to subatomic structures to protons and neutrons to quarks and now they're talking about super strings so what is matter that is becoming more and more a mystery as you study it deeper and deeper consciousness is not a mystery it's directly evident only if you say matter produces consciousness it becomes a mystery becomes hard problem of matter almost exactly in the same tone 100 years ago swami vivekananda saying matter is never experienced by anyone outside oneself then he goes further and says this cryptic statement we only feel ourselves we only experience ourselves what does it mean all that we experience is consciousness so that sounds very new agey but it sounds crazy no it is not and it can be demonstrated it can actually be demonstrated right now uh this comes from greg good who is here in new york um who is a psychologist and an advaitin non-dualist advaita vedanta and modern psychology and he gives this very nice thought experiment to show how um how uh we experience only ourselves how consciousness is the only thing that is experienced by us consciousness experiences consciousness how this is what he proposes step by step start with a very ordinary experience just imagine uh, or you can do it practically also 
you're looking at a flower, maybe a red flower. Now in the first stage he says, ask yourself this question. Is there a flower apart from the seeing of the flower? I'm seeing a flower. So is there an object for, called a flower apart from the seeing? Is there something called a flower which says, hey, I'm a flower apart from your seeing. You see us seeing a flower and apart from that there is, there is something, some object called flower. See, your mind tells you. So ignore that. Just attend closely to your experience, actual experience of seeing the flower. In seeing the flower, you will find all that you're experiencing is seeing a flower. Color, red, the shape of the flower. That's what you're seeing. Is, apart from that, is there an actual object called a flower which you are experiencing? No. All you are experiencing is seeing the flower. Stage one, we have no evidence of an object apart from the, uh, we have no experience of an object apart from the sensing, whether it's seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, touching. Apart from that, that there is a separate object which we label flower out there. This is mind doing it. Not experience. You are not experiencing it. So stage one. No object apart from the experiencing. This itself takes some time getting used to. But you will see. All you have to do is calmly settle down. And attend to your experience of seeing a flower. You will see all that there is. Is seeing the flower. Not a flower separate. Not an object item separate from your seeing. So seeing is going on. Now the second state. Is that. That seeing of the flower, is, there, is it anything apart from your awareness? In your awareness comes a picture of a flower. Apart from that awareness, is there any seeing going on? First of all, is there any object apart from the seeing? No. Now second question is, is there any seeing apart from awareness? No, it's impossible. By very logic, you will see that if there is no awareness, there is no question of seeing. If you fall asleep, you can't see anything. In While you are seeing, you will see that this flower is like a picture on a screen. The screen is awareness, suppose, and the picture is like a movie uh, on that screen. On the screen of your awareness, there is, the, there is the movie or the picture of a flower which is playing. Just as the movie does not exist apart from the movie screen, similarly, the seeing of the flower also does not exist apart from the consciousness. You can imagine the consciousness is an ocean in which the seeing of the flower is a wave in that ocean. Just as the wave does not exist apart from that ocean, before the wave only the ocean was, during the wave only the ocean is, and when the wave subsides it goes back to the ocean. Even when the wave has come it is not something apart from the ocean. Even when the seeing of the flower is going on it is not anything at all apart from, from consciousness or awareness. So in the last analysis, in every, every knowledge, in every experience, all that you, consciousness, are experiencing is yourself, consciousness. Consciousness experiences consciousness. Swami Vivekananda, more than a hundred years ago, he says, we feel only ourselves. Where is, even the evidence for matter requires consciousness. You see, the problem is, in the scientific approach, in the materialistic scientific approach, 
It is true that all the experiments that we do, all the data that we collect is through the mind and the senses with the help of the consciousness collects all this data. But in the scientific process it was found very soon, you can leave the mind, the subject out of this experiment because it's constant. You need not keep saying um, the mind performed this experiment one, then the mind performed this experiment two, the mind performed experiment three. You can leave that mind out of it and say experiment one, two, three, these are this is the data and you come to a conclusion. Objective method. If you keep the mind in the process, again problem is different minds also contribute, there will be subjectivity will be introduced to it. So for certain reasons it, found, it was found that science works best when you are objective, when you leave the subject out of the equation. Now the problem is when you start studying mind and consciousness, it leads to a, uh, this, this approach leads to a serious problem. A few years ago, a couple of years ago, uh, I was in NYU for a workshop on the philosophy of mind. So whatever we are discussing now uh, in modern philosophy, it's a philosophy of mind which is most closely um, involved in this kind of discussion. So the philosophy of mind, they have a very good philosophy department in, in the New York University. Um, I think one of the best in the world. So in the philosophy of mind in that workshop, um, there were three or four of probably the top philosophers of mind. I was just thinking, I remember seeing a stack of books on the philosophy of mind. And if you see those textbooks, the names of the authors, one after another, on the stack uh, shelf, those very authors were sitting in front of me on a sofa one after another. So that, can, that level of uh, expertise was there, the top philosophers of mind in the Western world today. And among them, probably the leading philosopher of mind today, Ned Block, he stood up to say, the scientific method of being objective, studying something objectively, has now become a stumbling block when the very subject of study is the subject itself, the mind itself. When the mind itself becomes what you are studying, how can you leave the mind out of it? You leave the subject out of it when you are studying science. It's objective. But when the subject itself is what you are studying, how can you leave the subject out of it? You cannot. So the procedure we have been used to is not, not is become a stumbling block in the understanding of mind and consciousness. This, this very spring semester, one of the things that I was studying at uh, the Harvard Philosophy Department in Emerson Hall was the philosophy of mind. And there you see the entire subject is now revolving around this one central battle. The effort is paper after paper is to, uh, going on to show how mind and consciousness are nothing but the brain. Are nothing but either to reduce mind and consciousness to brain states, neuronal activity, or to behavior, or to some linguistic uh, usage. That mind and consciousness cannot be fundamental, they must be reduced to um, brain or behavior or language and push back against this. A number of papers which say that this is not working, you cannot explain consciousness in this way. Thomas Nagel's uh, What is it like to be a bat, a famous paper. These, these, these things which I am quoting now will make sense only to those who have studied modern philosophy. Thomas Nagel's paper, What is it like to be a bat? 
um, John Searle's Chinese Room uh, experiment uh, and uh, Jackson's uh, thought experiment about Mary who has experienced only black and white and suddenly sees the color red for the first time. So all these papers, they're mostly thought experiments, they all go to show one thing, that the attempt to reduce consciousness to brain or language or behavior is not working. And this is the state of the art in the philosophy of mind today in 21st century. Swami Vivekananda said, all that we feel, all that we experience is within ourselves only. We feel nothing but ourselves. Consciousness experiences consciousness. The second reason he gave to show that the spiritual explanation, the consciousness explanation is better than the materialistic explanation, he says, it explains the universe better. And uh, he does not go into d details why. I think in, from today's perspective, David Chalmers' um, concept of the hard problem of consciousness supports what Swami Vivekananda said. While modern physics has been remarkably successful, though it's not complete, but remarkably su successful in explaining the physical universe, um, the whole thing breaks down when you come to consciousness. How can a material brain, which is an object, produce a first-person experience. The last thing that you can see in scientific experiments, in scientific uh, observation, is the firing of these neurons, which is matter, which is electrical activity on a tiny scale. Where is the thought? Where is the emotion? The, when you experience a rose, when you experience a cup of coffee, you are not experiencing bursts of electricity. There may be bursts of electricity in the brain correlated with that. But your experience is not of electricity. Your experience is of taste and sound and smell and, and touch. Your experience is of thought and wonder and anger and love and desire. All of these things, how are they related to these bursts of electricity? Nobody knows. Nobody knows. And there is, Vedanta will say they are making a category mistake, jumping from the objective to the subjective. One objective phenomenon can be explained in terms of another objective phenomenon. But an objective phenomenon, you're trying to explain from, the, um, the subject you're trying to explain in terms of object does not work. It's what's called in philosophy a category mistake. A philosopher once told me, and this is a standard argument, he said, um, he's in City College in New York, he said, no, we'll solve this problem. Give us some time. Bill also here says that it will be solved. And as science progresses, we will solve the problem of consciousness. The answer is no, it will not be solved that way. Why not? Uh, because the philosopher said to me that, for example, life. 100 years ago, it was considered a mystery which nobody in the universe can solve. I mean, no, no scientist can solve. But today, within 100 years, we have understood the phenomenon of life <coughs> to a very great um, uh, extent, down to the molecular activities in the living cells, we have understood. We know what is basically life, what's going on in life. Similarly, give us time, we are studying the brain and the nervous system to great depth. So within the next 30, 40, 50 years, we will be able to explain consciousness just as we have been able to understand life in terms of fundamental activities of the cells. Similarly, we will be able to explain consciousness in terms of brain activity. 
what's wrong with this this is called promissory materialism i have no explanation right now but i promise to give you an explanation after 40 50 100 years just as we have explained many things over the last 100 200 years what's wrong from a vedantic perspective the mistake is very evident <coughs> you have explained an objective phenomenon life in terms of other fundamental objective phenomena molecular activity no problem there even in vedanta it's admitted prana is objective vital functions are objective now when you say i will explain consciousness which is not an object everything is an object to consciousness but consciousness is not an object and so now you say i will explain consciousness in terms of objects you are already making a category mistake object explained in terms of other objects all right i see in principle that it could happen but consciousness explained in terms of objects is a category mistake vedanta says it's not possible you do not see the jump you are making so <coughs> this is the problem um what the advantage on the advaitic side is that it gives an explanation for consciousness or gives a place for consciousness and leaves modern science untouched you see the beauty of advaitic uh, the vedantic approach is that it does not challenge science it would be problematic some religions actually challenge science and they always lose lose because science is based on experimentation data and truth advaita does not challenge science at any point every scientific advance and explanation is welcome it broadens our understanding of the objective universe and the whole objective universe is lit up by consciousness is given existence by sat by pure being so it's a more complete explanation of life and the universe advaita vedanta is fully compatible with advances in modern science in in cosmology in quantum theory um, i don't know enough about that but more i hear about it and more um, i meet scientists <coughs> um i was just reading de broglie and heisenberg Uh, and um uh, a number of other uh, scientists uh, they say things which are very uh, very compatible with vedanta that's what i will say there is not vedanta as such but very compatible with vedanta that's what swami vivekananda said that um, uh, it uh, i will take the arguments on the spiritual side on the consciousness side because they are give a more complete explanation of of the universe and of life So this is how Swami Vivekananda answers the major objections from say scientific materialistic reductionism from the buddhistic non-self uh, type of arguments Now there are some practical questions also A question might be that won't this kind of a teaching that you are brahman won't it lead to immorality i can do anything i am brahman so i am beyond uh, suffering i am beyond so, uh, sin uh, so one can commit crimes in the name of advaita vedanta one can lead to an immoral life uh, another um, question could be that yes you can say that you are brahman but it's very difficult to show it in your life it's very dif- impractical it's difficult to live that li- live it in your day to day life and so i vivekananda says so what every child who is born sees the sky far 
away. Just because the sky is very far away, does that mean we will not look up to the sky? If you, it's difficult to get nectar and drink it, does it mean we have to drink poison? If non-dualism seems to be difficult, do you have to be stuck with dualism? Why? He says it. what is difficult now, as we move towards it, it will become easier and easier till we realize that it's our very nature. We must make that effort, he says. He says always it is bringing the ideal and making it living is always difficult. Dragging down the ideal, I cannot realize non-dualism and therefore I will make it dualistic. Dragging down the ideal to my present miserable life, that is easier. It's more difficult to push my life up to the ideal. But then we still have to make the effort. <coughs> there is no other way. As to the first question, Will Advaita lead to more Im uh, immorality in society? He says, absolutely not. He says, I'm convinced the contrary is true. It is because of weakness, he says, that man is immoral. It's because of weakness that we suffer. It is because of weakness that we die. It is because of weakness that we uh, tell lies, that we steal and kill and commit other crimes. Weakness is the source of evil. Weakness is the source of immorality. Strength is just the opposite. He says, strength is the remedy for the world's disease. It is strength that is the medicine that the poor must have when tyrannized over by the rich. And it is strength which is the medicine that the ignorant must have when oppressed by the learned. And it is strength, he says, which is the medicine uh, that uh, that that uh, every person he says he says who's a sinner must have when he's tyrannized over by other sinners. Nothing makes us stronger than the Advaita. He says this is the language of Swami Vivekananda. Nothing makes us stronger than this idea of monism, Advaita. Nothing makes us more moral than this idea of than, than Advaita. Nothing makes us work better at our highest and best than Advaita, when the entire responsibility is thrust upon us. Advaita puts the entire responsibility on you. There is no personal God to carry our burden. There is no devil or Satan to put the blame on. The entire responsibility is upon us. Then we perform at our best. Then we strive. If this be the truth, Swami Vivekananda says, then why not teach it to everybody? If we are pure already, if we are free already, then why not teach it with a voice of thunder, his language, why not teach it with a voice of thunder to every man, woman and child that lives? Why not teach it to the man on the throne and the man sweeping the streets? Why not teach it to sinner and saint alike? So this teaching of Advaita, he says, this is the thing which is to be taught now. Um, he gives a very beautiful this is the prayer the only prayer of the non-dualist just imagine more than 100 years ago here in New York uh, he is quoting from Shankaracharya's Nirvana Shatakam Name Mrityu Na Shanka Na Jati Bheda Pita Naiva Me Naiva Mata Na Janma Na bandhur na mitram gurur naiva shishya chidananda rupaha shivoham shivoham. For me there is no death nor doubt. For I have no birth, so how can I have father or mother? 
For me, there is no friend or foe or, or relative. Uh, for me, there is no guru or disciple. For I am of the nature of bliss and consciousness. I am Shiva. I am Shiva. Another verse he quoted from the same hymn. Na punyam, na papam, na saukhyam, na dukkham. Na mantro, na teetha, na veda, na yajna. Aham bhojanang neva bhojyam na bhokta. Chidananda rupa, shivoham, shivoham. It says, I have neither sin, neither merit nor demerit. Papa punya. And therefore I have neither neither pleasure nor pain. Because the idea, law of karma is that um, merit leads to uh, pleasure and demerit leads to pain. Punya leads to sukha and papa leads to dukkha. <coughs> I have neither. I have no need of rituals and scriptures and pilgrimages. I have no hunger and thirst. He says, I am not the food which is eaten. I am not the eater, not the eating. That, not just eating, so it's all kind of consumption. Because, Chidananda Rupaha, Shivoham, Shivoham. I am of the nature of consciousness. I am of the nature of bliss. I am Shiva. I am Shiva. He says, this is the only prayer of the non-dualist. And he says, let us repeat this to ourselves again and again, that I am Brahman. As we do this, masses of delusion will disappear. Gloom will disappear. Darkness will disappear from our, our lives. And the light will become stronger and stronger till finally the sun only shines. So in this grand way he concludes. It's a very beautiful and powerful talk. Freedom of the soul. I pray to Sri Ramakrishna to the Holy Mother, to Swami Vivekananda. May they bless us that we may reach this grand consummation in our spiritual life. May we realize ourselves as Brahman in this very life. Om Shanti 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 Hari Om Tatsat Sri Ramakrishna Rupanamastu